Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, Pastor Fred was supposed to preach today. He had a, uh, a wedding somewhere here uh, in, the, in the state, and he wasn't able to. So, so he asked me if I could fill his spot, and I told him, no way. No, he, he wanted to be here, but I'm always glad to, to fill in when uh, they're not able to be here. But I have told the ushers, once they find out I'm preaching, that none leave. So uh, if you try to escape, you will be stopped and questioned. I want to talk to you this morning uh, a message I've called the power of vision. Before we get into the primary text we're going to look at, I I want to just take a moment and, and by telling you a very, very poignant, very heart, kind of a heart-wrenching a story about a man who was very, very short-sighted in his vision. He was walking along the beach one day and he found this bottle practically buried completely in the sand. He saw just the tip of it and he dug around and he pulled this bottle out and as you might expect, he pulled the cork off the end of the bottle and this thick black cloud of smoke came out and, of course, you know what appeared in front of him was a genie. A very poignant, heart-wrenching story. Don't laugh. He stands back and he, he's amazed at what happens and the genie comes out and stretches. He goes, what do you want? You know the, do you know the deal? You get three wishes. No making a wish for more wishes. And the guy goes, really? He goes, yeah, what do, you, what, do you, what do you wish for? He goes, I wish for a million dollars to be put in my Swiss bank account. Jenny looks at him like, are you kidding me? He goes, okay. He crosses his arms, blinks his eyes, does that right there. And, okay. The guy grabs his smartphone and he starts spending a couple of minutes. He goes out there and sure enough, there's a million dollars added to his balance. He's almost giddy with excitement. The genie just looks, is shaking his head in disbelief. So, well, well what, what, what is your second wish? Oh, man. I want a bright red Ferrari. The genie just looks at him. You have got to be kidding me. So he does it like this, and this beautiful Ferrari appears right there on the sand with him, right on the beach. The guy is just beside himself with excitement, and the genie says, you're a fool. You're an idiot. And the guy looks at the genie. Why? He says, you have no, no vision sight at all. He said, you asked me for a million dollars. Why not two million? Why not 20 million? Why not 100 million? What's with a million? And then, like an idiot, you want me to bring to you this red Ferrari. You've got money in the bank. Go buy you a Ferrari. Don't waste your second wish. And he can see the man as he's talking to him. The guy, the light starts coming on. He realizes, boy, I am stupid. I'm just, yeah, I hadn't thought of that. He says, all right, I got my third wish. I'm ready. And well, what is it? I want you to make me absolutely irresistible to women. He goes, poof. And he turned him into a box of chocolates. <laughs> <laughs> Poignant, heart-wrenching story. <laughs> There's something about vision. <laughs> And sometimes we can very, be very short-sighted. When we've been given opportunities, we can be kind of like that guy and really not take full advantage of what God has put into our grasp to use for his kingdom. A number of years ago, uh, God, a number of years ago, a lifetime ago, I could not have been 
nine or ten years old at the most. Um, our family uh, lived in Eagle Lake, Texas, and about two hours south of us towards uh, San Antonio, uh, San Marcos, Texas. My mother grew up there. Her mother lived there. And so we went to visit Grandma Hagagans. And, and while we were there, they had this tourist uh, attraction in San Marcos called Wonder Cave, still there today. And uh, I, as, you know, as a young boy, I'd never been into a, to a cave, and so I was very excited about going into this cave. It is the only dry-formed cave in the United States. All others have been created by erosion and, and all of that. This one was created by some earthquake that they said happened 26 million years ago, whatever they come up with. But it's a dry-formed cave, and you would go into it about two or 300 feet, and uh, I was just excited about going in this cave, and we went down into it, I guess, probably two or 300 feet, and, and at one point, the tour guide had everybody find something to sit on or at least hold on to a rail, because he was going to turn the lights out. He said, I don't know if you've ever experienced absolute total darkness. And we all held on to something or sat down. And he turned the lights off in this cave. And I don't know if you have ever experienced thick darkness. I, it impacted me even as a young boy. I remember thinking, I wish he'd hurry up and turn the lights back on because while the lights were out, he, he had us put our hand in front of our face and see if we could see our hand and nothing. Absolute absence of light. And I think back on that and when he turned, turned the light back on, I, I can remember just feeling a sense of anxiety dissipate. There is something unnerving about a loss of sight. Uh, I think it's safe to say, folks, if, 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 if you were blind and you had a million dollars, you would probably gladly exchange that million dollars for a pair of eyes that could see. We would not let any obstacle stand in our way, but we would pay any price gladly and make any sacrifice necessary for the prize of getting our vision back. In Mark chapter 10, it records an encounter that Jesus had with a man who was blind. He had no sight. In Mark chapter 10, verse 46, look at the passage up here on the screen. Now, they came to Jericho, period. And as he went out of Jericho, stop right there for a minute. That is one short visit. <laughs> this is the kind of stuff Frank thinks of when he's studying scripture. I want to know what happened between the period and the letter A. I mean... That was really, must have been nothing significant in Jericho that day. I, I don't know that. I'm just saying it, it, they went to Jericho and as they went out. I, I don't know about you, but I think we've, we've all visited places that the best thing about those places was the road leaving. <laughs> when I was thinking about that this week, I, when I, I thought about towns that are great to leave, Yuma, Arizona. I hope nobody hears from Yuma. I hope if you're here, you will affirm what I'm saying. Hell called, they want their weather back. <laughs> I thought I knew what heat was. I'm from Texas. We invented it. Texas gets hot. I mean, uh, it gets so hot in Texas, you can see mosquitoes carrying canteens. Uh, <laughs> in some parts of Texas... In some parts of Texas, the trees have learned to whistle for dogs. <laughs> oh. 
But when you're in Yuma, you put your ear to the ground and listen, you can hear wailing and gnashing of teeth. It's, I'm saying folks, it's hot. And we lived there for about two months when I was in the seventh grade and I could not leave fast enough. I was so glad when my mom and dad said, hey, we're, we're moving to Fort Worth. And we moved into Fort Worth and, and it just, I've, I've never had any desire to go back to Yuma. Uh, hot place. Now, I, I don't know what, I don't know what goes on between the white space there. I just know whatever happened in Jericho must have stayed in Jericho. Jericho is not an insignificant city in Palestine in Jesus' day. It's about 17 miles south of Jerusalem, and it is on a main trade route. So there's a lot of commerce happening there, a lot of population. That might explain that it goes on to say in verse 46 that as he went out of Jericho with his disciples and a great multitude. So whatever happened in Jericho, it was significant, but it It apparently wasn't something that the Holy Spirit leading Mark to write led him to put in the scriptures. It just apparently whatever happened there wasn't something he wanted to share. But it's what happened on the road leaving that I think is significant. Because as they leave Jericho, his disciples and this great multitude, blind Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus, sat by the road begging. He's simply identified by the populace of Jericho as blind Bartimaeus. Probably designated them that way to identify him from others with the same name. That's how they knew him. He was apparently well known enough that he is further identified as a certain man's son, son of uh, Timaeus. And he's sitting by the road outside of the city. The reason he's there is because it is a high commerce road. People passing by constantly. But he's sitting there now and he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth that was passing by. He could hear the people talking and he, he began to understand, okay, I've heard about this Jesus and who he is. And apparently there is some measure of faith in him because he begins to cry out, verse 47, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Son of David, that's what we would call a messianic term. It's a term denoting that he believes Jesus is in fact Israel's Messiah. And he crawls out to him, have mercy on me. And he's crying this out constantly, apparently, because verse 48 says, Then many, many warned him, shut up, right? Be quiet. But he cried out all the more. He could care less. He cried out all the more, Jesus, son of David, Have mercy on me. And verse 49 says, So Jesus stood still and told those closest to him, he commanded him, commanded, go get him, tell him to come to me. And so the crowd turns to the blind man and says, Okay, be of good cheer. Rise. He's calling for you. And it says in verse 50 that he stood up and he threw aside his garments. That's interesting. He's just going to throw them aside. But he does. And somehow he makes his way. I would imagine somebody took him by the arm or the hand and led him to where Jesus was standing waiting for him. He throws aside his garment. He rose up and he came to Jesus. So Jesus answered and said to him, what do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabboni, 
It's a term of deep respect that I might receive my sight. Now think about this, folks. Some followers of Jesus Christ never get to the place of desperation where we persistently cry out to God. We never, we never get into that place. But this man is there. He has been blind, we don't know how long, long enough to be designated as blind Bartimaeus. But he comes to Jesus and Jesus tells him, go your way, verse 52, your faith has made you well, and immediately his sight, he received his sight and followed Jesus on the road. It's what is said in verse 52 that I want to bring to your attention. Jesus said, go your way, your faith has made you well. But the rest of the verse says, and immediately he received his sight and he followed Jesus. And instead of going his own way, as Jesus has said, go your way. But instead of going his way after receiving his sight, when Jesus gave him his vision, Jesus' way became his way. And folks, that is the way it's supposed to be. Right? For those of us who, who call Jesus our Lord, His way absolutely must become our way. We don't go our own way. When we come to faith in Christ, we bow the knee, call Him Lord, and Jesus says, why do you call me Lord, but you don't do what I say? So ask yourself, do I, as a rule of life, do what Jesus says? Or do I just kind of go my own way until tragedy strikes and then I try to find Jesus in that? Or am I walking with him the entire time? You remember, this, you know the words of the song, Amazing Grace, I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but what? Now I see. When we bowed the knee to our Lord God and Savior of this world, his way became our way. Now I want you just to hold that scene because that is a scene of somebody who was like me in Wonder Cave. He had, he had lost his vision, and then the light came on, and he was able to see. But there's another kind of sight about which the Scripture speaks. And it's a sight in many ways, every bit as important as physical sight. The Bible calls it vision or revelation. Look at Proverbs 29, verse 18 the New King James puts it this way, where there is no revelation, the people cast off restraint. Now, the revelation that's spoken of here is spiritual vision. It's a sight which goes beyond our physical capacity to see. This kind of vision is something we desperately need, though we may not realize it. And listen, not just, it's not something we need just simply as a body of believers, but we do need that. But it's something we desperately need for our own lives personally. We need God's revelation, God's vision in our souls personally. God, what have you called me to do as it relates to your cause? I am to be involved in my father's business. What is it you've called me to do? Folks, you know this, life can be either a random journey without any real direction whatsoever, or it can be a purposeful adventure of, as the Apostle Paul put it, pressing toward the goal for the prize of the high calling 
of God in Christ Jesus. Folks, it is vision that makes the difference. Now, what is meant by vision here? Proverbs 29, 18 gives the answer. It's one of those comparative proverbs. It gives you something at the front, and then it balances it with with something else at the end of it. Where there is no revelation, the people cast off restraint, but happy is he who keeps the law. So the proverb gives us the answer as to what that vision or that revelation is. Vision or revelation equals God's word. Where God's word is absent, you you have no no sense of direction, no purpose. As with blind Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus, who persistently cried out so that he could receive his sight. Folks, we should be persistently crying out to, to our God for our personal vision of his plan for our short lives on this planet. God, I don't want to spin my wheels And at the end of it all, having accomplished nothing of eternal value, right? So first of all, I just want you to know that that in, in terms of the power of vision is that a vision gives us guidance. It guides us. Your word is a lamp to my feet. It's a light to my path. You see the guidance there? And then look what he says. I have sworn and confirmed that I will keep your righteous judgments. In other words... I want your guidance, but it's dependent upon me to be obedient when you give me that vision that I just don't cast it off and just do my own thing anyway. When you show me what you want me to do, then I am absolutely, I'm sworn, I'm confirmed that I will do it. When he received his sight, Bartimaeus, the first thing he did, he didn't go his own way. He went the way Jesus was going. And folks, I'm convinced that most Christians, and frankly, even most churches, don't really know where they're going. You ask the average church member, where is your church going? Most say it's not going anywhere. We've been here since 1903. (laughs) We're not going anywhere. They don't don't have any idea. And frankly, some, some churches are going nowhere because they don't think they should go anywhere. They're happy with the way things are, and they're reaching nobody. Years ago, our church, when I was a young, a young man in the Lord, our church over there used to join some other men in the state of California and go up to uh, the Sonora, California area up there in the Gold Rush country, Motherload country. There was a place called Jeunesse Park, beautiful pine trees. And we'd go up there once a year, two, three hundred men, and they always had uh, just top-notch men of God, just powerful speakers and one of my favorites over the years was a, uh, an African-American pastor named Pastor Willie Ganey. He, he pastored in San Jose. And he, tell, he tells his story. There's no way I could tell you the story the way he tells it because he, he had such a great sense of humor. And, but the story captivated me, and I've never forgotten, and it's probably been 30, 35 years ago that I heard this story. But he was pastoring a, a small congregation in San Jose, And the church had been at this location for decades and decades and decades. And over the course of those decades, the the community had gradually dissolved and it had become an industrial park. And they were seeing fewer and fewer people come to their church because it was just located in such a bad area. Well, uh, down the road several miles, there was a a building came available. And Pastor Willie tells that, that he wanted to bring to the church... Uh, the, the, the motion that we take 
and move, relocate down the street, get out of this industrial park, get more into a residential area where we can have greater impact for the kingdom. And so he was going to bring that to the congregation, one of the business meetings. And as he tells the story, he said his greatest fear as a young pastor was that there was this 80-year-old deacon, he called Deacon Joe, who just was hard to get along with and knew he was going to have problems with this guy. And you know, you get, you get up there and you just know somebody's going to oppose what you're about to bring. You want to lead this congregation, but you know this guy's got a lot of influence and it could, the whole thing could just shut down as he, as he talked about it. And so he had the business meeting that night and the motion was brought to the floor that they relocate. And sure enough, uh, he, as, as Willie Ganey says, that the, the, the deacon stood up and he, said, and he began to talk about how his parents had been bringing him, had gone to this church all their life. And they sat right here in this pew, right here by this pole. And he said, I was raised right here in this pew sitting right by this pole. And when my parents died, my kids were raised right here. This is our pew. We sat right here by this pew, on this pew, by this pole, all of our lives. And, and I don't think we should go anywhere. And you could hear the silence in the congregation. He thought, oh my goodness, I'm going to lose this, the momentum here. But then he describes this one, and, and you have to I couldn't remember exactly how I described her other than that she, she stood up behind the people sitting in front of her and she barely cleared their heads. She was so short. And he said, but she was one of those, those ladies who wore the hats with all of the flowers or the birds or the fruit. And it was all, she always had a beautiful hat on. And, and she stood up and she looked up over the person sitting down in front of her and she said, Brother Pastor, I want to bring a motion that we give Deacon Joe that pew and that pole and let's take this church down the road. I love that story. There was a woman with vision. You see, some, some churches mistakenly think they've arrived. Even Christians have arrived. But many are going nowhere because they don't know where they should go. They have no vision for their life. What is this vision we need? Well, our text says that without this vision, the people cast off restraint. Now, what it means by vision? Well, the word is used for vision here. The, the word used is ref, refers to revelation from God. I don't think we have any trouble getting that. It's talking about God's vision, God's revelation, God's guidance. Because he goes on to say, but he who keeps your word, happy is he. So it's a talking about the revelation of God's word as it applies to your life personally. Where there is no revelation, the people cast off restraint, but happy is the one who keeps the law. If you want a good paraphrase of that, it might sound something like this. When God's revealed will is ignored, people do whatever they want. But those who obey God's word are blessed. This is talking about specific revelation given to us by God for our lives. In other words, it's God's word to us. It's the living word for today. The, this vision, folks, is a picture of a desired future. What does God want from my life? It's a picture that can be seen by faith of what is, is not yet, but of what can be. But it's even more than that. It's of what God wants it to be. God gives you, this is what I want your life to do. While you're here, in this designated period of history, your life will count, Frank, if you do what I call you to do, I will empower you, enable you, fill you, and I'll use you for the kingdom's sake and for my glory. 
Are you on board with me, Frank? And God says, that's the way you make a difference. Our text says that without God's revelation, without his vision, we cast off restraint. In other words, what does that mean? Well, it's a word that's used in Proverbs, and it has the connotation of letting something slip through your fingers by ignoring an opportunity. In other words, without clear vision to guide us, to direct us, we fail in the most miserable of ways by missing what God has for us. Are you willing to be as desperate for vision as Bartimaeus was to get to Jesus You got to say something about the man. He was persistent. But are you willing to get desperate before God and persistently ask him, show me your vision. Give me your sight for my life. I want to see it in the midst of all of your routine business, folks. Are you accomplishing anything of eternal significance for the kingdom? God has blessed some of you with your, your, your own business and you make a good living at it, but is the kingdom of God advancing in the way you're handling business, the way you're doing it? Some of you are in the educational system. Boy, the Lord needs as much light and people of great faith and confidence in Him in that area of of the world as anything. He's placed you there. Are you making a difference? Are you being used by God to impact those whom you teach? In the midst of all of our life, Are you doing something for God's kingdom? Let me ask you a question. Are you spending your life or are you investing your life? There's a difference. Wouldn't you like it to be said about you what was said of of David? I love this passage. In Acts chapter 13, verse 36, the first part of that verse says this. What a great epitaph for your headstone. For David... After he served his generation by the will of God, fell asleep and was buried with his fathers. I want that to be said of me. I hope someday when the Lord takes me home, that what can be said is that Frank served his generation by the will of God. I want that to be the case. There's this old poem I thought of again this week. Hadn't heard it in years, but I remembered it. He slept beneath the moon. He played beneath the sun. He lived a life of going to do and then died with nothing done. If you are not living out your life with God's purpose, then folks, your life is reduced to a lost opportunity. Undisciplined lives go nowhere important. Let that sink in. The kind of vision we need is is a vision which will give us purpose for our lives. It's the kind of direction which will enable us to find our self-worth in helping build the kingdom. It's the kind of word which gives stability, gives guidance, gives joy, gives excitement. You get excited when you know, I'm right where God wants me. I'm right in the center of his will right now. I'm doing exactly what he wants me to do. Folks, it's that kind of motivation, I think, that turns lukewarm, lazy, sleeping saints into red-hot living workers with a grand cause of turning this world around for Jesus. We need that. We can be that. Be encouraged. We need that kind of vision, don't we? Both as individuals and then collectively as Jesus' church, we need that. We need to understand that there is a supreme 
overriding cause to which we must give ourselves. It's a cause of Jesus Christ in reaching the world. It's the cause of reaching people with the good news of Christ in such a way that they're changed forever by it. You've been given these and handed these out every week. I, I hope that you're taking advantage of these. Putting on there some names of people you personally can pray for and that you can also invite to church, that you can witness to. Is it God's will that you share Christ? Yes? Yes. yes. You've got an opportunity to, to list those names, to pray specifically for those people, and to watch God use you as an instrument in His hands to bring those people to faith. Because, folks, it's the cause of seeing people won to Christ and brought into the fellowship of the local church where they can grow in grace. That's what we are about. It's a cause of seeing people discipled and conformed to the image of Christ. We want to bring glory to God and do things that fit His eternal purpose. And, folks, we must settle for nothing less. Nothing less. This is the kind of vision which can keep the fire in our bones which can make our church dynamic and alive because the Holy Spirit, He moves in people who say, yes, Lord, use me. I'm available to you. I'm desperate for you. We need a vision. Having a vision guides us. We don't become Christians and then do our own thing. Like Bartimaeus, when Jesus changes our lives, his way becomes our way, right? Whatever he's doing, that's what we're doing. This is what Gilbert said last week, and he said, seek first, what? The kingdom of God and his righteousness, right? What's some great examples in the scripture of people who were people of vision? Abraham, obviously, is one. Hebrews eleven eight tells us about Abraham. By faith, Abraham obeyed. When he was called to go out to a place which he would receive as an inheritance. And when he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith he dwelt in the land of promise. As in a foreign country. He was where he was promised to be. But he lived as if he was in a foreign country. Dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob. The heirs with him of the very same promise. For he waited for the city which has foundations. Whose builder and maker is God. He saw beyond the real estate he was standing on. Yeah, this is the promise. I may not live to see it become a mighty nation in my day and time, but really I'm looking beyond this and I can see, I can see far past the temporal. These all died in faith, verse 13 says, not having received the promise, but having seen them Afar off, look at this, and were assured of them, embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For those who say such things declare plainly, they seek a homeland. See, it wasn't about the real estate. Abram had a vision that far went far beyond that, that piece of ground that's called Israel. Yes, he was promised that, but he dwelt in that land his whole lifetime as a, as a, as a foreigner would, would be there. And truly, if they had called to mind that country from which they had come out of, they would have had opportunity to return. Look, if he didn't like it, he could have gone home. But no, God promised this land. And frankly, I'm looking beyond this land and I'm looking for a, found, a building whose foundations and builder was God. Moses was another one that had vision. By faith, Moses... When he came of age, refused to be called the son of the Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer the affliction of the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he looked to the reward. For by faith he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king. 
Here it is. For he endured as seeing him who's invisible. That's incredible vision. Blessed are those who believe and have yet not seen, Jesus said. Moses was a man of vision. Our Lord Jesus Christ was a man of impeccable vision. He knew what he was about from the get-go. I always do those things which please the Father, he said. But in in Luke chapter 9, shortly before his crucifixion, it says in verse 51, Now it came to pass when the time had come for him to be received up. That happens in Acts chapter 1. But when it came his time to be received up, that he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. Steadfastly, it means to set fast, literally to turn resolutely in a certain direction. It means to confirm or to be fixed in a purpose. And he sent messengers before his face, and they went and they entered the village of the Samaritans to prepare for him. But they did not receive him because his face was set for the journey to Jerusalem. It was so obvious where he was going, the people said, don't even waste your time with him. He's just passing through. And if you keep reading through Luke, that's where it says Jesus started going to Jerusalem. But you get in chapter 13, it says, and he went through all the cities and villages teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. Chapter 17, and it came to pass as he went to Jerusalem. Chapter 18, then he took with him the 12 and said to them, behold, we go up to Jerusalem. Chapter 19, and as they heard these things, he added and spake a parable because he was near to Jerusalem. Chapter 19, verse 28, and when he had thus spoken, he went before them ascending up to Jerusalem. You getting the idea? Steadfastly set his face towards Jerusalem and nothing would detour him because he had a vision. We know what his vision was. The writer of Hebrews tells us in chapter 12, verse 2, that we're to look unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. Look at this. Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Do you know what Jesus went to Jerusalem for? He went there to die for your sin and for my sin. But he looked beyond that. You know what drove him? Because he could, he could say, someday, because of what I'm going to do there, Frank is going to trust me as his Lord and Savior. And that brings my heart joy. And you bring Jesus joy when you come to faith in him. There's vision. He knew what his purpose was. I have come to seek and to save that which is lost. And he endured the cross looking for the joy that was set before him because he knew you were going to come in. And some of you here today, you have yet to come in. You're going to get an opportunity later to make a decision that will change the direction and the course of your life before we dismiss today. Having a mission guides us, folks. It guides us. Back in 1988, I was working for a company in Tulare, an Israeli-owned company. I would say it's one of the best jobs I ever had. Teresa would tell you I was almost married to it. I loved the job. Uh, A lot of welding and fabrication work stuff that's just in my wheelhouse and repair work on dairy, some dairy equipment. And I'd worked there for, for about three years and the Israeli company was going to sell that business. They wanted to continue to bring their, their brand of feeder wagons in, but they were no longer going to run it. They wanted somebody to buy the company out, and the, I was offered the business. They were gonna, it was going to come with two or three service trucks, I forget now, a shop with welders, all the, everything I needed, clientele, everything. A chance to own my own business. And for a week, for a week, I, I prayed and 
Me and Teresa had endless conversation about should we do it? What's the pros? What's the cons? And my dad met with me one day at a coffee shop and told him what was going on in my world. And my dad gave me some great advice. He said, hey, that's exciting to own your own business. My dad had, had, had owned several businesses. And he said, but one of the things you need to realize is when you own your own business, you're pretty much married to it. Uh, you don't have holidays like others. And you, you, you have to be there. And, and uh, you know, I, I was kind of weighing all this out. But I can remember it was on a Friday, and I was in prayer about it. What am I supposed to do, Lord? Am I supposed to? This is a great opportunity. It's the American dream, right? You know, own your own business. But what happened as the Lord spoke to my heart, he just gently reminded me that about two or three years earlier, he had begun calling me to do what I'm doing this morning. And what made, the, what made the decision, folks, is that when I considered, would this business help me with this or would it take time away from this? And once I had God's vision <laughs> once again refreshed in my mind, this is what God's called me to do, as reluctant as I was. <laughs> trust me, I didn't particularly care for this. But God called me, no doubt. My heart was, was so impressed with this, doing this that I, I, I said no to that, and when I did, the peace of God, which passes understanding, took over. I'm saying having God's vision will guide you. If you know what he's called you to do, then you learn to say no to the right things, and you learn to say yes to the right things. Having a clear revelation from God about his will for our lives, amen. Well, listen, his will for a congregation of fellow believers it's going to govern our priorities as a church. It's going to govern our priorities as individuals. And it'll give us deep convictions about what we're to be busy about. You can see it in Jesus as a young boy at the age of 12 sitting there. And his parents had lost him in the crowd of this caravan. They found him in the temple talking to all of the religious leaders. And they, and they were stressed about it. And they found him. And he said, why did you seek me? Did you not know that I must be about my father's business? Or at the age of 12, Jesus knew what he was about. It drove his life. It set his course. And folks, it's no different for us. It should be said that in, in order for you to receive vision, this revelation for your life, you must also be willing to do what God tells you to do. He will not reveal truth to those who will not be willing to do it. Think about this. Jesus walked by blind Bartimaeus, didn't stop. You think Jesus was aware that he was there? He, yeah, Jesus heard him. Of course Jesus knew he was there. Apparently, this is the reason he went to Jericho, because they went in and out of Jericho in the white space about that long. <laughs> Nothing else to tell us. Why even tell us you went to Jericho if it wasn't for this incident, right? So this is important. But you think about it, Jesus just walked right by him. Wait a minute, Jesus, isn't this why you came here? Shh, I got a plan. Jesus, 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 have mercy on me, son of David, over and over and over again. He persistently cried out to him. And then, and then when Jesus stopped, even then Jesus asked him, well, what do you want? Well, I give you three guesses. The first two don't count, Jesus. Don't ever get sarcastic with Jesus. I'm just kidding. <laughs> just kidding, Lord. No, I mean, but I want you to see. Why does Jesus ask him? 
Because, listen, the man had a desperation to have vision. He was desperate. And Jesus wanted him to go all the way. Yeah, Jesus could have walked by and just went like this. You're healed. Boom. But Jesus wanted the man to be persistent. Listen, a desperate heart is essential to encountering our Lord and his vision for our lives. As the deer pants for the water brooks, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, the living God. You hear the desperation in the psalmist? Lord, the thirst in my life is for you. A.W. Tozer writes this in his book, The Pursuit of God, worthy of your time to read. He says this, I want to deliberately I want deliberately to encourage this mighty longing after God. The lack of it has brought us to our present low estate. The stiff and wooden quality about our religious lives is a result of our lack of holy desire. Complacency is a deadly foe of all spiritual growth. Acute desire must be present or there will be no manifestation of Christ to his people. He waits to be wanted too bad that with many of us, he waits so long, so long in vain. Tozer also said, God has nothing to say to the frivolous man. You need to be serious about it. You need to be desperate like Bartimaeus was desperate. Lord, have mercy on me. Show me. Give me vision. Ask him. Because God does have a vision for you. The question is, are you open to the opportunities he may show you? Are you willing to boldly go where you may never have gone before for him? Your spiritual life and the spiritual life of this church depends on this, folks. Remember our text where there's no revelation the people cast off restraint. They're just undisciplined and we're just going through the motions. Where there's no vision, the people let opportunity slip right through their fingers because they fail to see them. In order to experience the power of vision, we must desperately desire it, folks. Desperately desire it and be willing to order our lives by it. The result of living a vision is a changed life. Seeing the vision and acting on it can change your life, the life of the church and the lives of others. Because vision guides us quickly. The second thing is vision unites us. As we catch a vision for God for our lives and for the life of his church, and we share that vision by working together to see it happen. Folks, we will be united in a purpose. The God kind of dynamic life that should characterize his church. It's been rightly said, listen, we, we have got to have our personal vision. God, what are you calling me to do? It may be to change diapers on Sunday morning. That may be where God wants to put you and train you. It may be teaching. It may be working in the parking lot. It may be taking Pastor Frank to lunch. I don't know what he's calling you to do. <laughs> that was shameless, absolutely shameless. But if we, can, if we can all figure out what God wants us to do, get desperate before him, and he's using every single person in this room do you know what, have any idea what God could do to the city of Lamore and Kings County in California? 
God's wanting to do that. It's been rightly said, a single snowflake can't do much, but if you get enough of them to stick together, they can shut down the city of New York. Guys, by ourselves, God can use us, but collectively, whoo, the gates of hell won't prevail, right? I want to be a part of a church that's dynamic and exciting, and I am. I think I am. The church where people are excited about their faith and about the ministries of their church. A church where people are positive and and forward-looking, where people are open to innovative ideas, which can make their ministry more dynamic and the outreach more effective. I want to be a part of that church. The church alive with the creative power of the Spirit and the rallying cry is, we can do all things through Christ who strengthened us, not, we've never done it that way. I want to be a part of that, right? It's a a church where people expect to experience God's presence when they get together and expect to see God involved in the activity in their midst. I want to hang around that kind of people, right? It's a church where spiritual welfare of the people is genuine. It's a church where people are committed to meet the needs of other people, where the members are actively involved in ministry. It's an Acts chapter 2 kind of people. A church where people share their lives with one another. They're committed and they're involved in the life of the church. Listen, not simply because of what they need, but because of what others may need. And folks, I'm absolutely convinced The most fruitful, Christ-honoring days of South Valley are still in front of us. Amen? Amen? Absolutely. Jesus told a church in Revelation, the church at Philadelphia, these things says he who's holy and who's true, who has the key of David, He who opens and no one shuts, shuts and no one opens, I know your works. See, I have set before you an open door and no one can shut it. For you have a little strength. You've kept my word. You see, that's important, right? Where there is no revelation, people perish. But but he who obeys my word, happy is that person. Listen, folks. Jesus is setting before us an open door. Let's don't close it in his face, okay? Quickly, I've gone over. I'm in trouble. I will hear about this. <laughs> Three things, quickly. Be prayerful. Be prayerful for your church. On, on, on uh, Tuesday mornings, 6 a.m., men are meeting in that North Forty, about a half a dozen of praying for the church, praying for the nation, praying for Whatever. On Wednesday evening, another group of men meet. Same room, 7 p.m., praying for the church. I know ladies' groups are meeting and praying. Everyone commit themselves to pray. Take these and pray for lost people. So be prayerful. Be patient. I say that because some of the things I hear, where are we at in the process of getting a new pastor? When is that going to happen? When is that going to happen? I understand that. I understand that. Be patient. There are things happening beneath the surface that are exciting. And you're going to be a part of them. But we've got to get this church on mission and on vision. We've got to get on track. Pastor Gilbert and Pastor Fred are working towards that end. Getting the staff who's going to get the church going in the same direction. When we get a new pastor, we're going to put the keys in his hand. And we're going to leave him behind if he don't start leading us because we're going for Jesus. 
But we want a church that's ready to hand over to the man of God that he leads here, right? Amen. One more. Be persistent. Don't give up. Don't give up. Keep praying. Keep, keep living for Jesus. And I would say this. Be persistent in pursuing what God's called you to do. Don't just fill a chair. Fill a purpose. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your word. I trust, God, that you've moved on people's hearts. May we be encouraged as you move us forward in the cause of your great kingdom. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a good and godly week. We'll see you next Sunday.